Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, on Memorial Day, Buttigieg and Moulton accuse Trump of dodging the draft, an update on who's in and who's probably out for the debates, and how the Hispanic vote might be key for the primaries. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Over the Memorial Day weekend, Mayor Pete Buttigieg repeated a statement he made earlier the previous week. The gist of it is that Buttigieg believes President Trump faked a disability in order to be ineligible for the draft in Vietnam. And by the way, among the primary candidates, Buttigieg is not alone. So first off, let's review which candidates in this 24-person field are actually veterans. The veterans are Buttigieg, Gabbard, Gravel, and Moulton. Of that list, Buttigieg is the youngest, but not by much. There's only one year separating him and Gabbard, and then two more years up to Moulton. Then it's 49 years up to Gravel. Buttigieg served in Afghanistan. Gabbard served in Iraq and Kuwait. Gravel served in West Germany and France during the Korean War. And Moulton served in Iraq. All of them were volunteers. None were drafted. Okay, so in a Washington Post event hosted by Bob Costa on Thursday, May 23rd, Buttigieg made some headlines with his remarks about the president. Listen in. Look, I don't have a problem standing up to somebody who was, you know, working on season seven, a celebrity apprentice when I was packing my bags for Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, it's not about him. Do you have a question? Do you think he should should have served in Vietnam? Well, I, I have a pretty dim view of his decision to use his privileged status to fake a disability in order to avoid serving in Vietnam. You believe he faked a disability? Do you believe he has a disability? Yeah. I'm uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> At least not that one. He, 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 um, no, I don't mean to, no, I don't. This is actually really important because I don't, I don't mean to, to trivialize disability, but I think that's exactly what he did. Uh, when, um, I mean, when you think about the way somebody can exploit the system, uh, and needless to say, the way he has treated and mocked disabled people is just one more example uh, of the, the many affronts to, to, to just basic decency uh, that this president has, uh, has inflicted on this country. Uh, uh, but manipulating... Uh, the ability to get a diagnosis. I mean, if you were a conscientious objector, I'd admire that. But this is somebody who I think it's fairly obvious to most of us took advantage of the fact that he was the child of a multimillionaire in order to pretend to be disabled so that somebody could go to war in his place. And I know that that dredges up old wounds from a complicated time during a complicated war. Um, But I'm also old enough to remember when conservatives talked about character as something that mattered in the presidency. And so I think it deserves to be talked about. Okay, so the context for this is that way back in the fall of 1968, when the U.S. was engaged in the conflict in Vietnam, Donald Trump was eligible for the draft, having been found fit for service in 1966. Then, Dr. Larry Bronstein, a podiatrist, allegedly gave Trump a written statement confirming that Trump had bone spurs in his feet that prevented him from serving. This, again, allegedly helped Trump get a medical exemption from the draft. 
His status was called 1Y, meaning he was unfit to be drafted except in the case of a national emergency. In total, Trump got four deferments from the draft. In a Washington Post piece from 2018, the doctor's daughters claim that this was a personal favor from the doctor to the Trump family because, oh, by the way, Trump's father owned the building where Dr. Bronstein had his podiatry practice. Now, the doctor died in 2007, and most of the draft records were destroyed in 1973, and now we're left with this kind of muddy picture. Trump says he had this disability. And what concrete evidence is there to say he didn't? Not much. So anyway, Buttigieg continued his line of attack on Sunday. On ABC's This Week, he told Martha Raddatz roughly the same thing he had told Costa last week. Listen in. The president and first lady on Thursday went to Arlington Cemetery at about the same time you were saying that the president faked his disability to get out of serving in Vietnam. Pretty positive about that? Yes. There is no question, I think, to any reasonable observer that the president found a way to falsify a disabled status, uh, taking advantage of his privileged status in order to avoid serving. You have somebody who thinks it's all right to let somebody go in his place into a deadly war and is willing to pretend to be disabled in order to do it. Uh, That is an assault on the honor of this country. I want to go to comments about that the president made about service members who have either been accused of war crimes or convicted of war crimes. He said, we teach them to fight and they get treated unfairly and he is going to look at those cases to see if perhaps they can be pardoned. The idea that being sent to war turns you into a murderer is exactly the kind of thing that those of us who have served have been trying to beat back for more than a generation. For a president, especially a president who never served, to say he's going to come in and overrule that system of military justice undermines the very foundations, legal and moral, of this country. Frankly, his idea that being sent to fight makes you automatically into some kind of war criminal is a slander against veterans that could only come from somebody who never served. But Buttigieg is not alone in going straight for Trump on this issue. Here's Seth Moulton talking to Casey Hunt on MSNBC. This clip is from Sunday night. I'm also the only candidate who's talking about taking Donald Trump on as commander in chief, about questioning what really makes a patriot. I mean, let's not forget, this is a guy who used his father's connections to lie about his feet so he didn't have to serve in his generation's war. I mean, what a contrast between Donald Trump and, and, and an American president like John F. Kennedy, who used his father's connections to get medically cleared when he probably shouldn't have been cleared so that he could deploy in his generation's war. This is fundamentally a weak commander in chief, and we need to take him on on that count. And that's exactly what I'm doing in this campaign. Do you think that Donald Trump is a patriotic man? No. I don't think that uh, that lying to get out of serving your country is patriotic. And don't forget, you know, when, when Donald Trump did that, and he did it multiple times, it's not like there was just some empty seat in Vietnam. You know, someone had to go in his place. I'd like to meet the American hero someday who went in Donald's, Donald Trump's place to Vietnam. I hope he's still alive. 
And then on Monday night, Moulton continued during an appearance on Anderson Cooper 360 on CNN. This was part of a much larger exchange about foreign policy and the role of the commander-in-chief and so on. In this one, it's kind of subtle. Listen for a mention of President Nixon, who served in World War II. Listen in. You know, I know we're not always going to have presidents we agree with. And we've had some terrible presidents in our history. We've had presidents who are immoral, who are backwards, who have terrible policies. Uh, We've had presidents who are criminals, like Richard Nixon. I don't think we've ever had a president who's so fundamentally unpatriotic. I mean, even Richard Nixon served his country and was proud to do so. This this president is much more interested in siding with dictators if it's good for his for his ratings. And that's pretty pathetic for the commander in chief. So all of this adds up to an additional line of attack that can be used by, like I said, four candidates right now. Sure, anybody can criticize the president for whatever they like, but there is a certain authority in a candidate saying, yeah, I was actually in the military and actually deployed to a war zone overseas, so here's what I think. Now, the other thing to know about this story is that there are a ton of other candidates talking about Trump and foreign policy and wars overseas and his relationship with dictators and all this other stuff that is part of a policy debate. But what's notable about this particular story is that we have two major candidates openly saying the president lied in order to dodge the draft. That is a big accusation, and it's also probably an unprovable one, given how long ago it happened and the lack of records. But watch for this line of argument to develop as we get deeper into the primaries and certainly the debates. The key question here is not just whether a candidate's status as a veteran makes that candidate more electable. I think it's actually way more complicated. The question here seems to be more about the posture of those veterans who are candidates. What I mean is, does attacking Donald Trump on his avoidance of military service actually move the needle in your favor? We don't know yet. We don't have good data on that. But the fact that you have two candidates diving headfirst into this issue this early in the process is fascinating. So stay tuned to see how the president responds. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, next up, a quick update on some candidates who are very likely in or out of the upcoming DNC debates in late June. First up is good old Mike Gravel, whose campaign tweeted yesterday morning that he has 38,000 donors right now. 
That puts him well short of the 65,000 donors the DNC requires to qualify a candidate for the debates. Now, the good news for Gravel is that the numbers are moving in the right direction, just going kind of too slowly. Back on April 18th, I reported that he had 20,000 donors. Then on May 3rd, his campaign actually told me on Twitter that they had around 30,000. So he's getting there with 38,000 now, but likely not in time for the first set of debates. The campaign tweeted, quote, We can promise you this. We will do everything we can to get Mike to the debate stage, whether in June or July. We will not rest until Mike has qualified. End quote. And, for the record, Gravel has not qualified via the alternate polling method, so unless he gets a serious media bump the next couple of weeks, or he finds 27,000 donors in a big hurry, he's not going to be on that stage in late June in Miami. Meanwhile, Jay Inslee announced last week that he has reached the 65,000 donor threshold, and he had already reached the 1% polling threshold, so he is virtually guaranteed a spot in the debates. Now, by my count, we now have precisely 20 candidates who have reached either the polling or fundraising thresholds. There are 12 who have reached both. So right now, like today, all the candidates who have reached either threshold will make it, but that is certain to change. Now begins the messy process of tiebreakers and working to pump up your numbers at the last minute. And just for the record, I want to list the major candidates who have uncertain debate status right now. That means I either don't have the data, or, like Gravel, I do have the data and it's not looking great. Those candidates are Bennett, Gravel, Moulton, and Messam. All four of them are in danger of missing the initial debates, though they still have a few weeks to make a move. And honestly, Moulton announced so late but it's possible he just hasn't shown up in polls yet because he is such a new candidate. Over the weekend, Will Weissert wrote an Associated Press article titled 2020 Democratic Primary Calendar May Boost Hispanic Voter Clout. It's a look at how changes to early primary voting may boost the influence of Hispanic voters. In the article, Weissert notes that in the two earliest contests, the Hispanic population is relatively low. Reading from the piece, quote, Hispanics make up just 6% of the population in Iowa, which holds caucuses February 3rd, and barely half that percentage in New Hampshire, which goes next. But then comes Nevada, where almost 30% of people are Hispanic, And just 10 days later this cycle, California and Texas, home to 13 plus million eligible Hispanic voters, nearly half of all such voters nationwide, according to the Pew Research Center, vote on Super Tuesday. That means candidates who can win consistent Hispanic support could potentially secure a viable, if narrow, path of survival through the primary's frantic opening weeks as the 23-candidate field winnows. A total of 4,051 Democratic delegates are up for grabs, nearly 500 of those will be in California, and 260-plus in Texas. Both allocate delegates proportionally, though, meaning even the winners likely have to share their halls, and potentially providing more lifelines for any candidate who can mobilize Hispanics even if they don't finish first. End quote. Okay, so this dovetails with a couple of stories we've covered before. The first is, lots of big states are moving up their primaries to Super Tuesday so that they have a bigger early impact. 
The other is that Democratic primaries allocate their delegates proportionally, as long as a given candidate reaches 15% of the primary vote in a state, they get a share of those delegates. That is different from Republican primaries, which are generally winner-take-all. So what that means is, if you have a candidate with strong Hispanic support in a given state, that candidate could easily survive all the way to the convention and actually have an effect on the final outcome, even if they don't necessarily win. Okay, so this leads to questions like, how big is this part of the electorate, right? Like, are they turning out to vote in elections, and by how much? Well, good news, the AP article has all those stats. So here are the percentages of voters by ethnicity in the 2018 midterms, which might, or might not, be a good guide for what to expect in the primaries and then the 2020 general election. Just over 40% of Hispanic voters turned out in 2018. 51% of black voters turned out, and 55% of white voters turned out. So there is a gap there, but the article points out the Hispanic turnout increased more than 13% between the 2014 and 2018 midterms. So perhaps that will increase again. We don't know. And here's the part where this all gets super important in terms of math. Reading from the AP. Quote, Hispanics will outpace African Americans to become the electorate's largest nationwide racial minority group for the first time on Election Day 2020, accounting for more than 13% of eligible voters, according to Pew Projections. Not all Hispanics are Democrats, but about two-thirds reported voting for the party during last fall's midterms, according to AP VoteCast, a survey of the 2018 national electorate. End quote. Right. So one of the major themes lately in the primary race is that Joe Biden is doing very well with black voters. That data is clear. And that group's turnout percentage exceeds that of Hispanic voters, at least it has so far. But as demographics change, a successful Democratic candidate will need an increasingly diverse coalition to win. And an increasingly large part of that coalition is Hispanic voters. And, by the way, this race does include a major candidate who is himself Hispanic, that is Julian Castro of Texas. Almost all the major campaign websites have full translations in Spanish, and some even have specifically tailored their launch messages differently towards Spanish-speaking voters. A great example of that is Joe Biden, who released an entirely separate launch video on his announcement day, featuring a bunch of Spanish speakers and a fundamentally different message than his English-language video. Add to that, there are accommodations being made right now on the campaign trail for Spanish speakers. Reading from the AP, quote, Senator Kamala Harris has a home state advantage in California, and... During a recent town hall in neighboring Nevada, handed out headsets to attendees who wanted to listen to a Spanish translation, along with signs reading Kamala Harris for the People in English and Spanish. She's also named Emmy Ruiz, Hillary Clinton's 2016 state director in Nevada, as a senior advisor, and Julie Chavez Rodriguez, granddaughter of legendary activist Cesar Chavez, is her campaign's co-national political director. Cristobal Alex, who headed the Latino Victory Pack, is an advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden, while Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign points to polling showing his rising popularity with Hispanics. It's also enlisted Carmen Julene Cruz, mayor of the Puerto Rican capital of San Juan, known for sparring verbally with President Donald Trump in the wake of Hurricane Maria's 2017 devastation of the island. 
Then there's New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who invited Julian Cruz to Trump's State of the Union speech. End quote. So I think you get the point. Right now, a lot of the major candidates are paying a ton of attention to Hispanic voters. And the field right now is wide open to see who they're going to vote for. This is a space that we are going to watch as the primary continues. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. For those of you looking for a political fix tonight and you've got HBO... You might want to check out the documentary Running with Beto, premiering tonight. It is about O'Rourke's failed Senate run in Texas. Now, I have not seen it yet. I'm going to try and watch it tonight. But it'll be interesting to see what that film crew got going even farther behind the scenes than all those live streams that O'Rourke did during that campaign. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow.